celebration of life. This bloke was a legend, they said. And his son got up to tell those who gathered there just what a legend his dad was, what a top bloke, and what a literary genius this man was. And he told this story of this Russian poet asking his father, was it true that he was an atheist? Well, yes, Sir Kingsley said, and then added, but it's more than that. I hate him. Only an Englishman could, in an attempt to justify the absence of God, turn out unwittingly to acknowledge his existence. Makes you wonder, though, doesn't it? It's quite a strong reaction to a question, do you believe in God? No, I don't. I hate him. Makes you wonder what he hated about God. Hatred seems a little over the top these days. Uh, in this post-militant atheism, uh, now the type of atheism that is in our media it tends to be a little more gentle, a little more chilled, a little more restrained. These days, uh, you think of a, an atheist like uh, Alain de Botton. He might say, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. At Nourish this year, at our first Nourish, we, um, we, we learn a pretty handy question that any of us can ask anyone that we might sit down next to, that we might meet, to open up a conversation about faith. It's pretty simple. It's just this. Do you have a faith? Imagine you're at dinner. In fact, imagine you're at a wedding. And uh, you know how at wedding receptions, you don't, get who, you, you don't get to choose who you sit next to. And perhaps you're seated next to someone like Sir Kingsley Amos, a very kind of intellectual dominating in, uh, genius. Imagine you sat next to that man and you pluck up the courage. You pluck up the courage because you've been to nourish and you say to him, do you have a faith? And he says, no, I'm an atheist. And then you say, wasn't it a lovely wedding? Isn't the food really nice? Where do you go with that? No, I'm an atheist. Here's where you can go. Here's a follow-up. Do you have a faith? No, I don't believe in God. Tell me about the God you don't believe in. And as you listen, it could just be that you don't believe in that God either. Because many people reject God. Some very forcefully, I hate, I don't believe in God, but I hate him. Some less forcefully, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. But what kind of God are people rejecting? This all not to surprise us. The scriptures speak about us in our natural state as being enemies, being in opposition to God. So it ought not surprise us that many people take this position. But it may well be that the God that people are rejecting is not the God that we're going to come across tonight as we look at Psalm 33. For it is not a general God in which we believe in, an undefined, big, divine thingy up there. But we believe in a specific God, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian theologian John Frame writes that the first thing and the one thing we need to know about God is this, simply that he is Lord. God is Lord. 
And in fact, that's how God has revealed himself. When he first revealed himself to Moses, how did he reveal himself? As Lord. How does Jesus reveal himself? Well, we know that in the scriptures, he's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Psalm 33, that psalm that we've had read to us, is all about the Lordship of God. So why don't you open up to Psalm 33? And there's three aspects for which God is Lord there in your outlines. Firstly, he is Lord over creation. There in verse 7, he gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. There, the psalmist is claiming the immensity of the oceans are but a, a bathtub to God. The total volume of the world's water is like a jar on his kitchen bench, kombucha, something like that, if you like. That's what it is like to God. Why is something of such immensity so small to him? Because he made the water. He made, indeed, everything in our world. And how did he make them? Verse 6, so effortlessly. He, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry hosts by the breath of his mouth. His word effortlessly brings about into creation our world, all the water, all the nature, everything uh, within our world. And therefore God determines and defines reality. He made us and we were made for him. Verse 8, let all the earth fear the Lord, let all the peoples of the world revere him. So firstly, God is Lord over creation. But secondly, he's also Lord over history. And that's what verses 11 to 10 help us understand because what verses 11 and, uh, sorry, 10 and 11 do is they contrast the counsel and the plans of God with the counsel and the plans of the nations. Verse 10 says that the Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts or stops the purposes of the people. That's interesting, isn't it? How do many people think about the role of God in their life, even if they do believe in a God? He's someone who helps me. He's someone who aids me to do what I want to do. But here, God thwarts the plans of men and nations. You see, we make plans. We make plans all the time. Kings make plans. And as we saw in the book of Judges, When there was no king, everyone acts as they are themselves king. And so we make plans. We make plans like we are kings. And then God stops them. And then we're frustrated. Indeed, perhaps this is even the basis for why some people dismiss God, even in hatred. Because he stops their plans. Why? Because God in his kindness is reminding us when we're thwarted. He's reminding us who he is, that he is Lord. He is Lord over our lives. Indeed, he is Lord over all of creation. Verse 11 says, The plans of the Lord stand forever, the purposes of his heart throughout all generations. See, who do you think determines history? I've got a picture, I think, up on the screen. Uh, It's a picture of what they call the big three. There they are. Can you name them? Have a go. 
Well, okay, what, okay. Put your hands up. Just write a rabble. Put your hands up. One, yep. Stalin, with a bit of help. Thank you, Tao. Very, yes. Here are the men post World War II assembling to organise uh, Europe. Here is how history unfolded. These three men made the decisions. These three men determined where Germany would be split in two. These men determined what the reparations would be. But verse 11 reminds us that although God does allow men to impart, make decisions for our world, it is he who rules our world beyond these men, beyond our generation, beyond any person, because the problem with any man is it only works for a generation. The purpose and heart of God is through all generations. The Lord is, God is Lord over creation. He's Lord over history. Thanks, Nick, you can take it down. And thirdly, he's Lord over humanity. He looks down, verse 13. He watches verse 14, over us. A little like divine CCTV. You know, do you feel that these days? It's, it's hard to go into the city and not see or notice uh, a myriad of cameras, perhaps even things that we don't notice, sensors, these kinds of things. We're in a world of surveillance. This is new. Catherine Tanner is professor at Yale University in America, and she observes in her Gifford lectures over the past 100 years that with a decline in belief in God in our Western world, at the same time as there's been a decline in the belief in God, there has been a rise proportionally in our surveillance of one another. And Tanner applies this to work. She says that the Reformation, when the Reformation came, it utterly and dramatically altered the way people worked. The way people worked because of the Reformation became an act of worship. They were working for God and before him. And so as people worked in light of the Reformation, they were accountable to God for what they did. And, historically, there was a very high level of trust between employer and employee. But, she says, with the decline of God, we've seen the rise and the replacement of trust by management of one another. A constant surveillance of one another's work occurs. And this is not just work. Our lives are surveilled perhaps more than we actually know through big data, uh, through what we say when we're talking to our spouse and our phone happens to be on. And we say, as modern secular people, we don't want God because we want to be free. And we're disturbed perhaps that God would be watching every moment of our life. But is it not more disturbing that we would hand over this role to other humans? It is before God that we must ultimately give account 
verse 8, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all people, let all the people of the world revere him. You see, if we keep handing over God's role to other people, well, if we keep handing over God's role to other people, we do that because we do not fear God. And when we do not fear God, who do we fear? We fear others. If we're not in awe of God, who are we in awe of? We're in awe of others. Here the psalmist is giving us an opportunity to see ourselves rightly because he is Lord over creation. He's Lord over water. He's Lord over the plants that grow. He's Lord over every moment of history. He's Lord over every moment of our lives. He's Lord. The second aspect of this psalm is God's character. A person's character is made up of what they do and what they love. God's character is also made up of what he does and what he loves. What does God do? Psalm 33 verse 4, he does what he says. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. We live in a post-truth world. Again, it's not surprising, is it, that when God becomes passe, guess what else becomes passe? Truth. But God is not post-truth. He's not even pre-truth or pan-truth. He is truth. Everything he says is true. And everything he says he does. I wish this was true about me. You can ask Mandy about this. She wishes this was true about me. But it's not. It's not true of any human being. And this is the problem. This is why truth is getting messed up in our world, because we don't have a datum for truth. We think that the datum for truth is one another, but it can't be, because we're not people who can keep our world word. We aren't people who can all the time speak the truth. If God is not our reference for truth, then falsehood creeps in. It creeps into our culture and it creeps into our society because it's part of our lives. See, the truth of God is not something that's just cold and right. The truth of God is so beautifully and wonderfully creative that that same truth brings about this world that he is Lord over because there is an integrity between his speech and his actions. All his work is done in faithfulness. So what we've seen is that there are spheres for which God is Lord over. Pretty well everything, creation, history, our lives. And he's not just Lord over little things, he's Lord over everything. There's a magnitude, there's a massiveness about his power. For it's an absolute power. It's an inescapable power if God is really Lord. He spoke and it came to be. His plans stand forever power power is the ability to bring into reality your intention i don't have that power but god does god does he speaks and it is he intends and it is there's a great book that was written around 300 years ago 
called The Existence and Attributes of God by a man named Stephen Charnock. And in it, he says that quote there in your outline. It say, he says, The power of God is the ability and strength whereby he can bring to pass whatsoever his infinite wisdom may direct and whatsoever the infinite purity of his will may resolve. The key word there is whatsoever. Because without his power, God's mercy would just be pathetic, feeble pity. Without his power, his promises would just be lovely sentiments, like on a hallmark card. Without his power, his threats of judgment would just be, Charnock says, like a mere scarecrow. But he is Lord. He is Lord over creation. He is Lord over history. He is Lord over our lives. And his power is the effective realisation of his attributes. Who he is, is what he does. See, what drives God? It's there in verse 5. Have a look at verse 5. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. This is what drives God. This is his, who he is. These are parts of his uh, attributes. That's why justice is not just punishing sin, but also delivering people from sin, because both are done to right wrongs. And what happens when he loves righteousness and justice? What kind of power does he bring about? What's well, the second half of verse 5? The, the whole earth is full of his unfailing love. The earth is full, the psalmist is saying, of his steadfast love. This reminds us of other sections of scripture in Isaiah chapter 6. We're told that the earth is full, and other psalms, the earth is full of the glory of God. But here in Psalm 33, the psalmist is saying that the earth is full. It's a theatre for the display of God's love. But perhaps we don't see that. Perhaps we don't experience that over all creation. What about cancer, war, poverty, broken relationships? So I think here the psalmist is speaking of a world that will be He's making the claim not on the basis of what he sees or even what he experiences now, but on the basis of what he knows about God. God is powerful. He knows that. He's helped us see that. And God is loving. And that power and that love will come together, even if he doesn't experience it right now. The psalmist knew that one day God would bring about his love and his power. And we know that day, that day when God brought together those two realities, those two realities of his power and his love. Because we know that in the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, God's steadfast love and justice was at work. And it was at work in the death of Jesus to pay for our sins for God's justice to be satisfied. And it was at work when God raised the Lord Jesus from death to life and in the raising of the Lord Jesus' body, there is the pronouncement of a new world, a world of love, a world of ever-increasing love for how long? For all eternity. 
is a world that the Lord Jesus proclaims in his resurrection, the world that he invites us to when we trust in him. I don't know if you go shopping much. I don't do that much shopping. Once you get a bit older, this is true, men, you just get given things, don't you? I used to go shopping, and I have little things that would catch my eye, things that I would know that I'd like. Navy blue, that was, you know, that's my colour. Um, if I see something in tartan, I really love it. I think it's because my dad called me Stuart, E.W. You have those little things when you go shopping that catches your eye, things you know you love? Well, God has things that grab his eye. And it's there in verse 18, the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those who hope in his unfailing love. The idea of the Lord here and his eye is not um, like a, a remote surveillance trying to catch you for doing something wrong. The eye of the Lord has to do with his loving care. God is powerful. He is powerful. But he is loving. And he is so loving that his eye is upon those who fear him. So do you fear him? Is his eye upon you? Could I ask a follow-up question, which I think would even be a better question? Do you hope in his steadfast love? Because if you hope in his steadfast love, if you know he is both powerful and loving, if you know that he has expressed this love to you in the Lord Jesus, then his eye of care is upon you, upon every moment of your life, upon every possible circumstance that could happen. And verse 12, you are, in the psalmist's mind, you are blessed. Because blessed are those in the nation whose God is the Lord who he chose for his inheritance. And more than that, verse 20, you are under his protective care. He is a shield around and over you. And verse 19, he will deliver you, your soul from death. Any harm will not come to pass. And what is the result? If we know that God is Lord of our world and his love is directed to us, what is the result for us? Well, it's verse 21, that our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. I don't know how often you rejoice, like genuinely rejoice. Rejoice in having the Lord of the universe, the one who has the oceans on his kitchen bench. That power is directed in love towards you. That's something to rejoice about, isn't it? That his eye is upon you. I know mums are like this. They are like hawks with their kids. Why? Because they love them. How much more? The God of the universe upon us because he loves us. But our hearts aren't always glad, are they? Mine isn't. Why? Well, I think verses 16 and 17 give us a hint It's because we're too willing to trust in everything other than the God of the universe, the one who is Lord over everything. And it seems a bit pathetic, doesn't it? That we would would trust in anything but him, but we do it all the time. In verse 16, the, 
there's a warning there that the king is not saved by the size of his army. Verse 17, a horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. These are powerful things, a horse and a king. But they cannot save. They could not save in ancient times. And for us, with all our technology, with all our development, with all our enlightenment, what piece of technology do you know that can bring someone back from the dead? And there is a difference between us and God. There is a massive chasm between who God is and his power and us and our pathetic attempts at power. There's a disparity between what we want and what we can have. And that frustrates us, doesn't it? Don't you get frustrated when there's this gap between what you want and what actually happens, what you're able to bring about in your life? You see, and that's the fundamental problem with us. The Bible has a word for this frustration. It's called sin. This is Adam and Eve's sin. They wanted what was God's. They wanted the power that God had for their lives. And we want the same. Adam is our father. Eve is our mother. Because we want what only God can have. You see, if we understand for a moment, just for a moment, God's immeasurable power, then we begin to actually understand ourselves. We begin to understand our place. Because over and over again, we make what I call this PR, this, sorry, HR blunder. We give someone the wrong job. Because whose job is it to know everything, to be everywhere? and to do everything. It's not our job. Why is it that so often we're anxious, gripped by fear and worry? So often it's because we want to know everything, we want to be everywhere, and we want to do everything, or we think we have to do everything and be everywhere and know everything. Our world feeds at this. It feeds the idea. We're given so much information there at our fingertips. We can control so much. How can control his car from his keys? Our world feeds the idea that we are, in fact, the king of our world. And we strive for the power of God. We'll strive for the power of God rather than rest in his power and his love for us. Because we're weak and we're limited. But there's something better than that. We're loved. We're loved by the God of the universe, the one who is Lord over everything and in every way. You see, unless we ascribe power to God, we will ascribe too much power to someone or something else. Do you have a faith? You could ask someone that. You could ask someone that next time you're at a wedding. Do you have a faith? Just see what they say. But do you have a faith? Do you have a faith in the Lord of the universe, in the one who has made everything, who rules history and every moment of your life and who has loved you with an everlasting love? You see, we need this kind of God 
It's not just any kind of God. It's not a divine thingy. It's the God of lordship and love displayed to us in the Lord Jesus, the one who is so loving that he would pursue us and forgive us, sustain us and die for us, so powerful that he would conquer death and that that power is now at work in us. Let me close with this quote from a man called B.B. Warfield. He says, The biblical writers find their comfort continually in the assurance that it is the righteous, holy, faithful, loving God in whose hands rests the determination of history. See, friends, not only should we trust the God of the universe, the Lord, not only should we trust him, but also we can trust him. Amen.